Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you tune in on. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, you can also support us on Patreon or you can find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive. Also, a heartfelt thanks for all your kindness and support, particularly from those who've already um, helped support us in this way. It's massively appreciated. If you do have any questions um, about the episode as well, um, you can, or, or questions about anything else, um, you can also contact me through the email address on the episode notes, show notes. Um, and yeah, always happy to answer any questions that people may have. On that note, let's dive into today's episode. In today's episode, we are going to be talking a little bit about magical timing um, and how it's important and how it's relevant in terms of practical magic. Timing in magic and spiritual work is extremely important when it comes to really sort of getting the results you want. As we've discussed previously on our episodes from a couple of years ago on planetary magic, the day of the week, the time of day, and also the time of the year all have different energies which may affect the outcome of a ritual or a spell and also have very different effects. In our busy modern society, um, you know, most of us are rushed off our feet a lot of the time and often we don't tend to take much attention or notice to what's going on in nature. However, it's really important that we don't ignore nature and that we do sort of pay attention to these natural tides that are going on around us, but also within our actual bodies as well. Many traditional groups in the Western mystery tradition um, and lodges, etc., will often choose to do their rituals on a weekend um, rather than the day of the solstice or a full moon, um, purely because it's it's more practical. It might be that you know people have to travel from all over the country on different days, and it's you know it's, it's sometimes quite difficult to get people together on a specific time and day. Um, however, it should be said that the effect of doing rituals not on the opportune time might not be as powerful as if you did do them on, on a specific um, solstice day or an equinox or a particular phase of the moon. Um, all of these things kind of go into effect with that. So when considering timing for a ritual or a spiritual piece of work, you've got different options that are available and there's many different factors ranging from very simple to extremely complex. 
However, the main ones that a lot of practitioners tend to focus on are the following. So we have the time of the year, which could be spring, summer, autumn or winter. We also have the moon phases, so waxing moon, waning moon, dark moon, new moon or full moon. We also have planetary days and I'll talk a bit more about them in a, in a, in a, in a little bit later. And then we also have the planetary hours as well. And there's also much more complicated aspects that can be brought into these as well. So for example, if one was competent with things like electional astrology, then you could also use that to calculate. However, for the purpose of beginners, um, the above kind of categories that we just discussed uh, are probably the best place to start really. So let's go into them in a little bit more detail. So the time of the year and in the pagan and Wiccan traditions there are normally eight sabbats that illustrate the relationship between the sun and the earth as it changes over the course of the year. The life-giving earth upon which we live and breathe is often associated with the mother goddess Gaia whilst the sun is associated with the god and this basically sets up a relationship where we have the earth maintaining a status quo to a certain extent beneath our feet whilst the sun's power ebbs and flows throughout the year and is also marked by eight festivals or sabbats. The main festivals that are celebrated are as follows. So we have the in the middle of the year, we're kind of going into into January really, and the one that's coming up is obviously the winter solstice, also known as Yule, um, which is in December. And this is this re really represents the darkness of winter and also the time of the most darkness of the year. However, it's also traditionally associated with the birth of the god or this spark of light that is born in the depths of the darkness of winter. So good kind of archetypes to think of when you're when you're thinking of that is obviously Jesus was born, you know, well, he probably wasn't actually born on Christmas Day, but um, that's one of the figures obviously associated with this time of year, um, the child of light. We also have um, figures like Horus and Baal, etc., um, who are born at that time and kind of a symbolism of that uh, rebirth and resurrection and the new light of the new year that's going to slowly grow. We then move on to Imbolc, which is in February, and this kind of symbolises, from a from a kind of symbolical point of view, this idea of the child of light or the young god is being nursed and is growing, growing into his kind of manhood. We then move on to Ostera, which is the spring equinox, and again it's kind of this process of growing and, and, and growing more and more. We then get the festival of Beltane, where the, the god effectively marries the goddess, so it's very much focused on fertility and uh, sex as well from that point of view in terms of this is the time when it's this marriage of the god and goddess. Or you could see it as more like the divine feminine and the masculine. Obviously, everything's exploding at that time. It's also the time when you know a lot of the animals are mating, and you know the birds are 
chasing each other through the trees and um, all of these different aspects which really illustrate this idea of like the sap rising and everything is getting ready to kind of procreate and bring forth the beauty of the summer. We then have midsummer which is obviously the summer solstice and which can really be kind of seen almost like fertilization um, of the goddess. It's almost like this development of all this power and the planting of the seed, which then will enable the um, enable the harvest that comes around later on in the year. The god is then honored as a high king at Lammas, which is one of the first of the harvest festivals. And then we also have the sacrifice at the autumn equinox, um, which some also call Mabon. And then the, then the and then the god is actually um, rules the land of the dead at Samhain, which we just had relatively recently, which is obviously um, Halloween, and which kind of signifies the death of the god or the sacrifice of the god, who is then reborn as the child of light um, at Yule, and so begins the cycle once again. There's different variations of that. Um, that's just some of the kind of core ideas um, around that. But um, yeah, that's just, just a few ideas. Through this cycle of life, death and rebirth, however, we see a full cycle of life. And this is a really good way of using the timing of the year to plan rituals for groups as you're aligning yourself with the forces of nature that are around us. And although many hermetic magicians may not agree with that idea um, we should always remember that we are you know flesh and blood and we live on this earth whether we like it or not and we are ruled by the elements around us and stories of the god and the goddess and the wheel of the year you know they kind of really emerge from this relationship that man had with the land and the elements and the sequence of festivals mark and celebrate the natural cycle of the year as expressed through the infinite beauty of nature and therefore you can kind of use these ideas to adapt to any particular um, mythological symbol or, or set that you you would work with um, and certainly if you do um, use them or adapt them to a particular uh, mythology or could be a magical tradition that you're particularly working in um, you will find if you do bring in elements of these themes that are connected with those um, those eight festivals of the year they will have uh, much more impact um, to a certain extent because you are working you know directly with the forces of nature of what's going on in nature and also going on uh, within your body as well and this idea is reflected quite well by the author Anna Franklin when she writes the following. The festivals mark particular energies entering and leaving our sphere. Powers of fertility and increase flood in at Beltane. And feelings of decay and decline surround us at Samhain. At Beltane we celebrate and harness the energies of growth for the land and for us personally and spiritually. At Samhain, we recognize the inevitability of death. We turn towards and inwards for deep 
reflection. So it's this idea that you know these processes are going on um, within within your actual being. And if you read a lot of books, you know more from the hermetic or kabbalistic um, element, often they won't really talk too much about the these kind of natural cycles. Um, it's almost kind of very separate from nature to a certain extent, but uh, it personally, from my own practice, I've found it's particularly effective. Um, if you, you could still use the Kabbalah um, to celebrate some of these seasonal festivals and things like that, um, but you will find that they will bring a lot more kind of power into what your work is. The, the other, the next one I wanted to talk about is, is obviously the moon and one of the most important elements in magic is the moon phases and working with the moon. The moon is that mysterious, that beautiful silvery being that holds a lot of fascination for mankind and is also a prime mover in our evolution and very important in magical work. As the Italian astrologer Guido Bonatti wrote in his Anime Astrologia, she of all the planets has the greatest similitude and correspondence with inferior things to pass by her daily effects, which she causes in all things here and the frequent revolutions about the elements and elementary bodies. By reason of the nearness of her orb to the earth and smaller circle than any other planet, so she seems a mediatrix between superior and inferior bodies. Also in more modern times, the magician Dion Fortune described the powers of the moon as follows. They hailed the sea as the oldest of created things, older even than the hills and the mother of all living. But they bade the sea remember that the moon is the giver of magnetic life and that it was from the moonlight on the sea that living forms arose. For the sea is formless, but the magnetic moon is the giver of form to the life of the waters. Adoration of and veneration of the moon has been a huge aspect of daily living around the world since the dawn of time and the sacredness of the moon is very much connected with the rhythms of the universe and life as it is these subtle ephemeral rhythms that affect and influence all beings across the earth but they also act as a mediator between the earth and more superior and celestial bodies and the moon has also become very important in spiritual practices and cultures as well so as being a a symbol rich with symbolism mythology and also being representative both of emotional and magical power but also deep karmic energy and energy that is the closest planet to the earth is considered to have a huge influence on the planet as the magician William Gray wrote the moon and magic have been inseparable from very ancient times and there are endless spells and customs connected with the lunar influence on humanity. Some of these are still current in practical Kabbalism, 
but the important philosophical principle concerned is that the moon is the reflector of the sun. No one can look directly at the sun without risking blindness, but the moon can be seen clearly enough. Thus, it symbolizes a quality of divine mercy in adapting the overpowering light of truth into more diffuse and softer rays, which our own human nature can comfortably bear. So we can think of the moon as being a mediator, a go-between between the earth and more superior and celestial bodies, or alternatively the microcosm and the macrocosm. And this also fits from the Kabbalistic perspective, uh, where we think about if we're in Malkut looking up at Yesod the moon. Also, Yesod is known as the treasure house of images and also the foundation and the home to the astral plane, where magic, be it kind of path working or scrying, takes place. Therefore, it's extremely important. And also, if you look at the Kabbalistic tree of life in terms of the triads, um, Yesod is kind of the linchpin of the magical triad connecting um, Hod, Netzach and Luna. So if you think about the astral kind of almost like your imagination really um, as being this link where you can connect with the spirits um, and the building blocks of magic, then the moon can be seen as being that kind of fundamental gateway that enables you to, to access the other realms also if you look at the tarot from that perspective as well we go when we um when, we, when we're in malkut and we go into the 32nd path which is the universe um, we travel up to yesod um which is kind of this it's sort of a gateway and if you look at the rider weight version of the the rider weight tarot there's actually an image of it's kind of like a, a circle or Kind of like a zero, and the woman is actually walking between the pillars um, through the gates, um, which you can almost see as being this idea of crossing the threshold and going into the astral plane represented by the moon as being this kind of mediator that enables magical power to be brought through and communication with spirits. Um, and... Also, looking at that from that perspective, some scholars have also theorised that the the power of the moon is so great that they see celestial powers as being derived from the primal and earthy, and the moon, the four directions, the earth and the subterranean, making up the original seven powers that were then later transferred to the planets. It should be remembered, however, from that point of view that the moon was created when a Mars-sized planet crashed into the original prototype of the Earth and then turned the planet to vapour. And as the vapour began to cool, a new planet began to form. A new planet that was the twin of the Earth, where it was believed that, you know, in antiquity, the spirits of the dead lived on the moon. So we've had this very ancient relationship with the, with the moon in the sky. When the moon is growing in size, it's known as waxing, and when it's diminishing, it's waning. And from a magical perspective, if the magical task you want to accomplish is new stuff, beginnings, increases, 
or growth, then a waxing moon is best. If it's banishing, diminishing, or focused on transformation, then the waning moon is best. As well as waxing and waning, however, um, the lunar cycle can be divided into four quarters or sections, each are which are part of the 28-day cycle during which the moon moves through the 12 signs of the zodiac. And these are as follows. We've got the first quarter. The first quarter of the moon is waxing. And this is when we see a crescent of light on the right side of the moon. And this part is symbolised by the maiden and the huntress Artemis and her silver bow. And Artemis is the protector of women and children and also the patron of wild animals. We also have the, the Roman god Diana is very relevant to this um, particular phase of the moon as the first crescent. And the new moon is very much about you know, planning long-term goals and also about planting seeds for the future, including creating you know, magical tools, because it's like the really kind of the birth of this magical cycle of 28 days. And you're planting the seeds for something that's going to grow and develop throughout that moon cycle. We then get to the second quarter, which is the moon grown halfway. And this is the second quarter, and it's kind of growing towards the full moon. And it's associated with the image of the mother. Goddesses that are associated with this is the Greek Selena, who's the. Um, and we also have the Rome, Roman uh, Luna as well. We then also move to the full moon, obviously, and this is basically the most powerful um, time, and also when you can do the fastest magic as well. And it's said that the closer you are to the full moon the more powerful a spell will be. So that when the full the moon is full, it reaches its zenith at midnight, sending down most of its magical power. And that is why the midnight hour um, is believed may have been maybe called the witching hour, um, because it's this connection with the moon, the full moon. The full moon is also the best time to do magic that needs a physical manifestation. We then move into the third quarter and this is where the moon's beginning to wane and this is the time to begin removing bad influences or removing you know negative things that you don't particularly want in your life and then we move to the fourth quarter which is associated with the crone and this is associated with Akate um, and other other crone goddesses so you get um, figures like Kundri in the grail cycle and this is a really powerful time of protection and banishment um, creation of amulets for example so obviously we will be talking about uh, talismans and amulets in a future episode but talismans traditionally are designed to attract things and amulets are more from a kind of protective um, element. Hecate is a particularly powerful goddess to work with in relation to the moon both as the goddess and mistress of magic but also in her role as goddess of the crossroads and mediator of cosmic forces of the planets and the zodiac and there's a beautiful hymn to Hecate that goes as follows and this was translated by Adam Forrest Hecate of the path I invoke thee lovely lady of the triple crossroads celestial Chthonian and marine one lady of the saffron robe 
sepulchral, celebrating the Bacchic mysteries amongst the souls of the dead, daughter of Perses, lover of solitude, rejoicing in dear. Nocturnal one, lady of the gods, invisible queen, she of the cry of the beasts, ungirt one, having an irresistible form. Bullherder, keeper of all the keys of the universe, mistress, guide, bride, nurturer of youths, mountain wanderer. I pray thee, maiden, to be present at our hallowed rites of initiation, always bestowing thy graciousness upon the Bucolos. As well as the different moon phases, waxing and waning, and also the quarters, we can also target this down even further by using a particular sign of the moon. So for example, if we wanted to bring in some extra energy in a ritual, we might do it when the moon is in Aries, for example. So Aries obviously being the first sign of the zodiac and it's kind of associated with this kind of youthful, um, lots of energy to kind of get things done and, um, and willpower. Or if the, if the ritual was more kind of spiritual focused or kind of introspective might be to do with meditation or, you know, finding some answers, then you could do something more astral focused in Pisces. Or alternatively, if you're looking at things like wealth, magic, um, stability or protection, then, you know, an earth sign like Virgo or Capricorn would also be a good choice. When working with the moon, it's also worth noting the position of the moon in daily magical diaries, as you will see also that this does uh, change the energy. Um, it's all about trying to connect with these energies and become, becoming more conscious of them, connecting with nature. And working out the astrological timing also for when you do rituals can be particularly effective and help to increase power and one of the easiest ways when thinking about creating rituals is to use the condition as a starting point so if you are doing a healing then it would work best while the moon is waxing particularly if you're focusing on increasing health and wellness and whilst if the moon's waning that would be more relevant if you're looking to remove the cause of disease rather than the growth of health also, if you had a job interview coming up and the moon is in Virgo, then you could increase the power of Virgo, you know, by creating a talisman or an amulet um, and, you know, drawing the glyph on, of Virgo on it, as well as, you know, some of the relevant other material materials such as stones, you know, incense, planets, things that kind of correspond with that particular um, sign. Another important aspect of lunar astrological magic is the mansions of the moon or as they were known in Arabic, al-Manazil al-Kamar. The mansions or resting places of the moon. This is quite a complicated subject, which we're not going to go into in depth. However, I wanted to kind of touch on it. And in essence, it's based on the theory that just as the sun's motion through the zodiac marks changes throughout the year, the moon changes throughout the night sky marks the changes throughout the month and for this reason there was developed a zodiac based on the moon's position in relation to 
important star groupings that are known as the 28 lunar mansions. And these are observed in many different cultures, including the Middle East, India and China. And these mansions are determined by the position of the moon as she circles the Earth and were basically used for timekeeping, but also for magical work with each mansion having its own characteristics, its own traits and also its own symbols. These mansions would have been used in traditional, so pre-1700 European astrology for electing appropriate times for different activities. For example, the Picatrix, which is a, a famous grimoire from that period, assigns different mansions to travel. So mansions 1, 5, 11, 13, 21 and 28 were meant to help journeys and voyages. Whilst other mansions would, would potentially kind of hinder those types of things. So if we were planning on going on a trip back in those days, and you know, obviously there was no planes or trains or you know even cars, um, so it was a, it was a massive decision if you were deciding to kind of travel a long distance. Also, bear in mind it would be quite dangerous as well. So there'd be lots of bandits, um, robbers on the roads who could potentially steal all your possessions and your money. Um, you know, you could get sick. There was quite a dangerous undertaking. So um, they would have, um, some people, probably not all of them, but they may have actually gone to see with someone who knew what they were talking about. But we would, if we wanted to do this travel, we would select a time when the moon was in a beneficent um, mansion. As well as being important with things like travel, the lunar mansions also have a full system of talismanic magic connected with them that is contained in the Picatrix whereby the magician would create different talismans according to the phase of the moon. For example, the second mansion is Albertain and is for the removal of anger. And when the moon is passing through this mansion, it writes, take white wax and mastic and melt them together over a fire then remove this from the fire and make the form of a crowned king. Suffumigate it with lignum, aloes, and say, You, Enidil, drive away this anger from me and let me be reconciled with him, and let my petition be satisfactory to him. Keep this image with you, and it shall be done. Know that Enidil is the name of the lord of this mansion. That's from the Picatrix. There's a lot more information about those um, those lunar mansions uh, in there as well, but I just kind of wanted to give you a bit of a bit of a flavour um, of it. If you are looking for other resources to, to kind of look at the lunar mansions, I would definitely recommend the work of Christopher Warnock and his excellent site RenaissanceAstrology.com, where he offers some really great courses. Um, and reading material on the mansions of the moon. The other element of timing that I wanted to talk about is planetary days and hours, which I'm sure probably a lot of you have already heard of. As well as the importance of the time of year and the phase and the position of the moon in the sky, the other important aspect that is worth thinking about when planning ritual work is what is known as planetary days and hours. And these are an ancient system whereby 
One of the seven classical planets is given rulership over each day and various parts of the day. This idea mostly comes down to us from Hellenistic astrology. However, most likely it was developed from Babylonia and may even be the origin of the names of the days. The classical planets, as we've discussed in our planetary magic episodes, are Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury and the Moon. And they take over rulership over the days of the week uh, over the hours of the day, sorry, in that sequence. The sequence begins from the slowest to the fastest moving planet as the planets appear in the night sky. And so it's from the furthest to the nearest in the planetary spheres model. And this is known as the Chaldean order. Each day is divided into 24 hours. The first hour of the day is ruled by the planet three places down in the Chaldean order from the planet ruling the first hour of the preceding day. For example, a day with its first hour ruled by the sun would be followed by a day with its first hour ruled by the moon, which would be obviously Monday, and then it would kind of continue like that. The planetary hour system is obviously based on this uh, Chaldean order of the planets which was Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon, which was based on the relative orbital velocity of the planets. And from a heliocentric point of view, the sequence also shows the relative distance of the planets from the centre of their orbits, which um, basically means the distance of the planets from the Sun and the distance of the moon from the earth and from a more traditional angle it also shows the arrangement of the planetary spheres the planetary hours use the chaldean order obviously to divide the time and each planetary hour of the planetary day has a planetary ruler that rules the first hour of that day but is also the ruler of the whole day and gives it its name. It's important to note with the planetary hours, however, that they are different to our 60-minute hours beginning at midnight. Rather, they divide each planetary day into 24 hours, with the first hour of the day beginning at sunrise and the last hour of the day ending at sunrise the next planetary day. The period from sunrise to sunset is then divided into 12 hours and the period from sunset to sunrise is also giving 12, so it gives a total of 24 hours for the day. Also, as the duration of daylight and night time is different, except at the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, so too it's important to note the length of the hours of the day will vary from the hours of the night and this is why they were described by the astrologer William Lilly as the unequal hours in his Christian astrology. In terms of how we calculate the planetary hours um, there the easiest way to do this is actually just to go on to one of the on the many online planetary hours calculators that you can find out there there's one on Renaissance Astrology, which is the website I mentioned earlier, but if you do a Google search, you should be able to find some other options as well. 
Um, you can also calculate them by hand, however. So you would basically get your local sunrise and sunset times, and then you take the time from sunrise to sunset and convert it into seconds and then divide by 12 to get the length of each planetary hour in hours, minutes and seconds. And then if we wanted to calculate the um, the night hours, we would then obviously take the sun time from sunset to sunrise the next day in seconds, then divide that by 12, and then you convert that to hours, minutes and seconds um, for the length of each planetary hour by night. The calculations ideally should be done in seconds because otherwise you start to get rounding errors which um, you know may potentially affect the outcome of your magic if you're being particularly um, focused on these kind of accuracy. And then obviously once you've done that, once you've calculated the hours, um, you would then start with the planet that rules the day. So for example, it'd be Saturn for Saturday, and then you'd follow the Chaldean order and assign the proper planet to each planetary hour of the day and night that you've just calculated. So it's relatively straightforward once you start getting the hang of it. But as I said, it, it, the easiest way is to just use one of the online calculators if you, um, you know, if you can't be bothered to actually, you know, do it yourself. Um, and using them for practical magic, um, one of the things that is quite interesting actually with regards to these planetary hours is is actually you know looking at sort of different events or or things that happen to you through the week and then kind of looking at what planetary hour was i in when that happened because often you'll start to see synchronicities um, and it will kind of help you to get the feel of these particular planetary energies as well and start to connect with some of these natural rhythms that i was talking about earlier but obviously we can also use them from the perspective of more practical and active work and you know we can choose to do activities within the appropriate planetary hour so for example you know if you were if you're single and you wanted to kind of ask someone out on a date then you could use the hour of venus or if it's an important work call or meeting or you know email you know, the hour of Mercury would be absolutely perfect for that. Or also profitable business deals, you know, um, the day and hour of Jupiter uh, would be particularly good. Um, the planetary hours are also mentioned extensively in the, you know, lots of the Renaissance and Grimoireic texts as well with regards to astrological um, talismans. And I'm not going to go into massive amounts of detail from that point of view um, typically what they would recommend is that you would make the talisman with the selected planet dignified rising or culminating in the planetary hour of the planet and with the planet and the moon unafflicted which is quite a complicated uh, process to do if obviously if you're not kind of experienced with it with regards to um, astrology um, personally, I found that if you if you can possibly try to uh, if you're making a talisman, if you try to make the talisman during the on on the planetary day and in the planetary hour, then that really does work wonders. And then obviously consecrate the talisman also on the day and in the planetary hour. Um, ideally, when the moon is you know either 
waxing or a full moon or if it's if it's like an amulet that you're using to potentially get rid of something or remove or protect then obviously you can use that during the, the dark moon um, but that's kind of like the easiest way to do, to work with these planetary days and hours is to actually just use the day and the hour and make sure that it's in you know the right moon phase rather than going in depth into um, the astrological elements but obviously if you do fancy doing that then uh, you know absolutely uh, go for it moving on to some of the group considerations um, you know timing is obviously really important with all this stuff but the important thing to remember is that we kind of want to work with conditions rather than against them and should aim to meet them on their own terms so if we are doing group work it's you know it's a good idea to look at you know what the astrological conditions are what position the moon is in uh, before starting and then also use them as inspiration for what you are planning to do and this can also help us with inspiration and new ideas on how to best work with the astrological atmosphere um, so we can look at the particular phase of the moon think about the the what kind of phase of the year are we in is it like midsummer and it's a full moon for example um, or or is it you know closer to Samhain and it's a, a waning moon um, you know this can all kind of give you inspiration and give you kind of extra power with regards to um, you know working with and, and designing kind of group rituals because you'll be matching the energies that are in the air um, and you know obviously this idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm so we can look up the sign and the phase of the moon to see if there's any planetary aspects at play you can also see if anything's in retrograde and then also look at like the astrological atmosphere for the, that time and you can also use it in from the point of view of you know any ideas or outlines that can you know work together and obviously match the energies that are in the air as I mentioned in the beginning this can often be an issue with groups because it's difficult getting people to together um, at a time when everyone's available so it can can be quite challenging from that point of view but if you can and then it can make a, a really big um, difference um, and also we can use the same principles to enhance or add more power to lesser influences to help modify or balance out the primary influences and this can be used if astrologically the the conditions are bad um, and we can incorporate other elements from the wheel of the year into our working as the author Ivo Dominguez wrote if your intended purpose requires growth and expansion that are not supported by the dominant conditions but your ritual or working is occurring near dawn then emphasize the rising of the sun in your plan of action you may also wish to place your primary altar in the east as it is the direction of spring and growth additionally you could consider adding the glyph of aries into some part of the working as another example let's say that you are having a ritual or working to commune with the ancestors and the conditions are not conductive to psychic sensitivity Samhain or Halloween is the time when it's easiest to communicate with the dead and it occurs at the midway points between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. If the ritual working will occur halfway between sunset and, sun and midnight 
then you can call upon the powers of Sawain. You may wish to place an altar in the northwest to anchor this place in the cycle. That's a quote from Evo Dominguez. From a timing perspective, the equinoxes uh, tend to be really powerful with regards to the natural energies, um, and particularly if you're working with any kind of spirit work, um, etc. So that's a few ideas on how we can use magical techniques to, and and also kind of use these this magical timing in our in our practices. Um, definitely kind of do more research on this and you know definitely try playing playing around with it particularly the planetary hours and the planetary days um, are, are really good ways of kind of connecting with these energies as well as the moon that's all we've got time for in this episode however in future episodes i'm going to be starting doing a series on magical talismans and amulets soon um, and I'd like to finish this episode with a reading of a poem by the 19th century poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox called The Year Outgrows the Spring. The year outgrows the spring it thought so sweet and clasps the summer with a new delight. Yet wearied leaves her languors and her heat when cool-browed autumn dawns upon his sight. The tree outgrows the bud's suggestive grace and feels new pride in blossoms fully blown. But even this to deeper joy gives place when bending boughs neath blushing burdens groan. Life's rarest moments are derived from change. The heart outgrows old happiness, old grief and suns itself in feelings new and strange. The most enduring pleasure is but brief. Our tastes, our needs are never twice the same. Nothing contents us long, however dear. The spirit in us, like the closer frame, outgrows the garments which it wore last year. Change is the watchword of progression when we tire of well-worn ways, we seek for new. This restless craving in the souls of men spurs them to climb and seek the mountain view. So let who will erect an altar shrine to meek-browed constancy and sing her praise. Unto enlivening change I shall build mine, who lends new zest and interest to my days.